1: you're listening to the archaeology podcast network you're listening to the archaeology show tas goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us welcome to the podcast okay so this is chris webster and this is paul zimmerman And we are actually sitting on the National Mall uh, in front of the American Museum of Natural History. And and the castle. And the Smithsonian Castle, which, being my first time to Washington, D.C., I didn't even know there was a thing called the Smithsonian Castle.
0: Yeah, we come down here. (laughs) My sister lives up in Arlington, so we're down here every Christmas time. And used to come down with the kids all the time to
1: ride on that carousel right across from us. Nice, nice. And go to uh, the museums, obviously. Museums. And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, We've got, just to place people here, we've got the... Washington Monument on our right. We've got the nation's capital um, on our left. Um, I got air and space up and to the left here. Uh, That's the Hirshhorn, right? Uh, I think so. I think that's the Hirshhorn. And there's a sculpture garden back here to the left.
0: We've got the Um, the National History Museum directly
1: behind us. uh, The American History Museum behind and to the right. Yeah. The new African-American uh, culture museum is down there by the monument. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. I
0: didn't have tickets. Did you?
1: I didn't have tickets either. I didn't so. know that we
0: needed tickets. I found out. <laughs> I told my wife yesterday,
1: so said, I think I'll go see that. She said, oh, you got tickets? I was like, well, I, I what? <laughs> yeah, we, we found that out not too long before we left, and I was like, you know what? I've never been down here. There's plenty of stuff we can see that we don't need tickets for right now. Yeah. Let's just kind of cover some of the highlights, and that's mm-hmm. what we've been doing. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about, though, is museums. And, um, uh, and I guess... You know we're just going to get into a, a conversation about this and maybe a little later a conversation about what museums could be in the in the future so i'll kick it off with this being my first time you know i've obviously been to museums before but my first time down here at the at the smithsonian museums and so like i said we've been to air and space natural history just a little bit of it the american museum of history is that, yeah, In the Museum of American History.
0: I Museum was over History. at the uh, Museum of uh, Native American History. That's right. Okay. Uh, American Indian Museum. American Indian Museum. And yep. uh, I'm going to go over to the Freer Sackler Galleries afterwards to, uh, yeah. to go check out their their
1: Islamic collections. Right, and we hit some of the other um, kind of big things you you really need to do occasionally when you come here. We we did a tour of the White House. Um, we did a this. yeah. We did a We almost we tried to do the Capitol, but you know you, see, you have to sign up on your congressman's website for the White House or the Capitol, and you have to uh-huh. get tickets, and then they let you know two weeks out whether or not you actually got it. Uh-huh. We never even got contacted with the Capitol, wow. um, but we got contacted about a month ago by the White House, the people that do that, that said, yeah, here's your time and blah 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 all that stuff. You got to bring your little ticket and things. Anyway, and we also did the um, we also walked up to uh, Library of Congress. And I went through the—I uh, think there's three buildings. We went through the, the main building right there, the Jefferson Building, I think it's called, uh-huh. the one with the big dome on it. Um, so yeah, and I and I mentioned that because those are those are all museums in their own right, really. Yeah, um, they're just done a different way. And I mean, they have exhibits. There's exhibits in the Library of Congress, which I didn't even know that. I d- actually expected it to be a big library with a reading room. But there's actually so you're exhibits going to go through the stacks, <laughs> and find yeah. a Carol, and sit down and read for a bit. I mean, it was just going to look, you know. I honestly, I, I mean. I, I still don't know the answer to this question. What kind of book, how does a book get into, like in 2017, almost 2018, how do new books get into the Library of Congress? Like I wrote a book three years ago. Mm -hmm. That book's not sitting on a shelf in the Library of Congress. There would be not enough space for all the books that are written every year. Right. So how does a book get into the Library of Congress to actually physically be on the shelves? Or is it all older stuff? Well, it's not all older stuff. New things do enter,
0: but I, I, I don't know. I've heard the answer before, and I honestly I,
1: can't <laughs> I don't know the answer. Yeah. I mean, there was a small part of me that was curious, wondering, is my book sitting on a shelf at the Library of Congress? <laughs> there was a tiny little fraction in my brain that was like, could that be true? <laughs> I know it's not, but I know it's listed in there somewhere in some computer archive. It's got to be. Yeah, because this guy has an ISBN number. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's listed in there somewhere. But anyway, so museums. Um, I've had a... I've had a huge, as an archaeologist, I've had a huge problem with museums um, in the past it, because most of the museums I've seen in my life, uh, I mean, let's face it, most of the museums everyone sees in their lives are probably smaller museums, less fancy. Well, you live in New York, so maybe all the museums you yeah, so see are world class. <laughs> <laughs> but most of the time, I'm seeing like a small local museum or something like that, you know, um, and, and it's just a, a small affair. They're highlighting some stuff for the region. Some little municipal things. Yeah, totally. private museums, something like that. Exactly. Yeah, really small things something for a small town it's a historical society or something Mm -hmm. like that and nine times out of ten they're displaying stuff the way I think uh like an art museum would display things there's things that are sitting there that you can look at Mm -hmm. that have maybe a little bit of a description and that's it that's it they're sitting in a case you can look at it and they have a description maybe maybe they'll just have a title or something like that And then that's it. I mean, if it's an exhibit full of other things um, of that type, they might not even have much description at all. It's just, here's a thing. Take a look at it, right? Um, One of the the biggest museums I've ever been in that was just like, this is all that was. And it's supposed to be one of the fanciest, nicest museums for archaeology in all of Europe was the Archaeology Museum in Naples. Italy and I was so unimpressed by that museum uh, and most of the artifacts in there are from Pompeii and I don't and thank you yeah. yeah and probably 70 to 80 percent of the displays are just like buttons and figurines and things uh, mounted on these displays with numbers next to them and there's no information whatsoever huh. no information about where it came from about what it was used for um, some of the mosaics they had on the wall they would actually have like oh this would have hung here or this would have been placed here or this would have been you know that was okay but but it was still on a wall in the museum. I mean the only really cool thing in there was aside from just like initially seeing those items, because they're they are unique uh, items from that time period, which is really cool, um oh, the, the the big like marble statues. I mean they had 20, 30 foot tall marble statues in there that are just monumental that came out of Pompeii and other places. Right. right. They're just in this museum now. And those are fantastic. You know I I mean but those are those are cool in the way that seeing the airplanes in the Air and Space Museum are cool. Like, oh my god, that's, that's you know... really that's, big and it's right there. It's right there. That's the right flyer. That's the spirit of St. Louis, you know. Uh-huh. That's the actual plane. There's the Bell X-1, you know. I mean, that's really cool seeing that stuff. Um, and from that standpoint, I thought that was really cool because I had never seen those things in the flesh. I, I already know the story though. I already have the context. Right. Well, that's the big part of museums. Uh, having the context. I
0: I I... I Used to bristle as a kid going to museums. (laughs) I mean, I okay, not always. When I was eleven, I came down to visit family, my uh, my cousins who lived up in Arlington, and for a weekend. And I dragged my cousin who doesn't live too far away I dragged him into the air and space museum three times in two days (laughs) because I was such an aviation geek that I had to see all those airplanes and uh, so but I had a lot of that context beforehand uh which really makes a huge difference but when I was a kid you know we'd go to an art museum someplace and all that I could do was maybe appreciate the art aesthetically Mm -hmm. and you know a 10 year old like me, wasn't really all that interested in appreciating the art aesthetically. I had no historical context for anything that I saw there, and, you know, most art museums don't have a whole lot of explanatory text like that. Mm As an adult now, I'm, I'm I'm actually much happier to go to a place that doesn't have a whole lot of explanatory text. I'll have the panels off to the side so that if I need to contextualize something in time or place or learn something about the artist or the culture or whatever, I can go off to the side and read it and jog my memory. Because more often than not, at this point in my life, it's a matter of like, ah, oh, it's something I've forgotten about, <laughs> and not, you know. But I've got some context, and then I can go and I can appreciate the the objects, the art, the whatever. Not necessarily on its own terms, but on terms that I can relate to. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so it, it's, it's something I've always struggled with, and we struggle with this a lot. I mean, I was telling you, my wife is a curator at the Metropolitan Museum, so we actually talk about museums and what museums should be doing uh, all the time. And we, she's in the, uh, the, the Department of Ancient Near Eastern Art, mm. and that department is basically an art historical department right. in the way that they've laid things out they have a new director of their department as of a year ago and she and my wife and one of the other senior curators there in her department have been working really hard to try to reimagine this they're like we're in an art museum how do we reconceive of how we display things so that we're not trying to force the history down everybody's throat right. but somebody with a little bit of history can can come in and understand the objects but the objects can shine not as examples of a particular time period, but as the object itself, right. and maybe you know, representative of the culture that made it. Uh, you know, these are so old, we don't know the artists that made them. Right. Uh, you know, but but that's a that's a tricky question, and it also gets into then some of the problems that you know we were having this conversation earlier about glorifying the object and what that does, especially with cultural and archaeological materials, uh, in terms of. You know, basically giving some sort of impetus to the art market and the looting of these things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, you definitely have some very strong opinions about this. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm entirely in line with them because I like stuff without too much explanatory text, and I want to see the objects. Right, but you know, there is there, there are pros and cons here. I think.
1: Yeah, and and you know, that's the. Uh, I gotta I gotta check my notifications here make sure my wife can find us. Um, <laughs> make sure she's not doing that. Okay. Anyway, that's the. Um, You know, the thing with the context, I mean, I'm such a, admittedly, I'm a context Nazi. I mean, I when I'm thinking of even like a modern, even like an art museum where you're talking about like uh, old world art or or what's the time period she works in? She's ancient Near Eastern. So
0: basically it's the the Middle East up to the time of Islam.
1: Now, see that to me even, I mean, that's sure it's ancient Near Eastern art, but it's archaeology. Yes. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's an archaeology museum right there. <laughs> that, that wing, Which anyway. Which is why it's <laughs> and in our field, the, yeah. the
0: divisions between uh, between art history, archaeology, philology, are really blurry, that we all kind of dip our toes into each other's fields, we all rely upon each other, we all read the same journals, Mm -hmm. and such, yeah, okay, the the, the Assyriologists are insane, and it's really hard to read their stuff. (laughs) You need to know a lot about Semitic and other languages in order to get anything out of it. Right. But, but even then, they're they're looking at inscriptions that are on materials that were uncovered archaeologically. Yeah. And so, if we expect to find inscriptions, and we're going into a, into the field in, in Iraq or Turkey or Syria or someplace, uh, you'd bring somebody along the project that that can read the materials, mm-hmm. and that'll definitely inform how you dig and where you dig and why you dig and what you preserve and you know, how you interpret everything. So it's, it's it's an integral part of what we do, uh, and those philologists are part of the part of the uh, the dig project you
1: know and I think I think that's one thing I'd like to see in museum exhibits though is placing you in the situation whether that um, placing you in the context to go back to that word whether that context is uh, where the you know the time period in the and the place where the thing was originally used or mm-hmm. or appreciated um, or the context in which it was found in some cases that seems more appropriate when we don't know a lot maybe about the people or the history because uh, like like the uh, uh, at the at the Air and Space Museum which we were at this morning and at the American Museum of Natural History we only went through a small part of it so far but in the human origins exhibit uh, we got to uh, a point where they were talking about like the uh, like the Neanderthal bone flute and things like that were mm-hmm. found and I didn't even realize it at first because it was so just like part of being there, um, there was a flute looping and playing in the background, and it wasn't obvious where it was coming from. It was just in there, and right. it was just playing in the background, and actually, almost when I first heard it, I was like, who's playing the flute? And then I realized it's <laughs> it's actually part of this exhibit, and you don't even realize it, and as you're moving through the exhibit, there weren't a lot of sounds like that, um, because... Uh, I guess there was like a fire sound, you know, at one of the fire things, uh-huh. but little things like that. I like to see stuff that actually tries to place you in the time period. And if I were, if I were trying to think like, if I were having a conversation with your wife or somebody like that, from my standpoint, somebody who doesn't actually know admittedly a whole lot about art completely, you know, like i I know nothing about art history and, you know, appreciating art like that. I've never taken any classes. So when I'm standing there looking at it. I would appreciate a little more context as to when this painting or sculpture or thing was created. I would like to say, you know, what do we know about that time period and can we reproduce some of the sounds? The original people that would have been appreciating this, would this have been in somebody's house? Would it have been outside where people looking at it can we have some sounds or even some smells? Maybe not smells, if we're talking ancient. Yeah, theories. no, yeah. probably not smells. Not, not smells. We don't want to drive people away. Well, but, maybe uh, a
0: campfire smell.
1: <laughs> camp Or food cooking smells. So that wouldn't That'd be, be okay. too bad. They'll lead people into the cafeteria, see? <clears> there <throat> was a, an
0: exhibit, I can't remember the artist, uh, a couple years ago in New York we went to, and it was an Assyrian town. And the mm. end of the exhibit, you're just in a dark room. <laughs> With the sounds around you. The artist worked in sound. That's awesome. And that was really cool. A great experience. But, you know, there wasn't much pedagogical material there. It was an art museum. Right. Um, But you get through. In the end, it's this very experiential, visceral sort of thing. That you're you're Mm -hmm. standing in this darkened room, maybe with your eyes closed, doesn't matter, uh, listening. Yeah. And... uh, and the different sounds of like instruments that are reproductions of ancient instruments and you know, the sounds of a town mm-hmm. around you, uh, which, which was an interesting way of, of trying to present uh, an experience basically. I thought that yeah. was really effective.
1: Well, and in that case, the sounds were to that artist the thing that was being studied and appreciated. Um, and if we could marry those two up with the visuals as well, mm-hmm. man, that would be so amazing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I love it when it's subtle like that, like when they did the, the flute in this museum. It's just, I almost didn't even notice it was there. Well, the subtlety, that's in—that's interesting. And that is, uh, is a problem that a lot of people
0: have. I have to, to some extent, too. It's like when you throw too many whiz-bang things into <laughs> yeah. an exhibition, you lose sight of the... Yeah. The primary reason for being there, right? right? You know, so and especially since we all have our tablets and our computers and such, now you can deploy that across the internet, and yeah. you can get your your ancillary information, you know, someplace else. Uh, so, so there's got to be good reason for why you're in that gallery at the time, looking at these objects, mm-hmm. um, or reading about them on the text panels, um, or listening to the sounds that pertain to them. You know, there's got to be something that brings you right in there. So, I think that there's, there's another balancing act there that has to be done between mm-hmm. trying to bring in some flash to make it more interesting of an experience and actually losing sight of why you're doing that. And I have something very specific about that is that every year in the, the fifth grade uh, at, at the Dalton School where I work, the students have a very long Mesopotamian curriculum. And at the end of it, we take them down to the University of Pennsylvania Museum hmm. so that they can see objects from the excavations at Ur. Nice. And there's a panel on the wall there that highlights work that I did uh looking at the, going back to the original excavation records, and trying to reconstruct some of the stratigraphy and the, the locations of the, uh, of the tombs mm-hmm. in space. And one of the things I found in that study was that some of the tombs aren't what, they're, they're not arrayed the way that the Woolley, the excavator, thought. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the sequence of them is inverted, he's lumped a couple of them together wrong. Uh, yeah, so I argued that in my <laughs> MA paper, um, but I used to go down there, I'd, I'd chaperone them, and we'd go into the exhibits, and, I, and we'd split the kids up into different groups, and some would go with one teacher, and, some would, and they'd cycle through us to get yeah. different explanations, and they'd get to me, and I'd tell them this little story about what I was doing. The point of it was that Woolley excavated you know, for the time very carefully, and recorded for the time very well. And because of that recording it allowed me 70 years later to go back and reanalyze and that that's the strength of it And that's the story I wanted to tell and that's why I wanted to tell the kids there and there's this panel and then I stopped doing that because I thought, well this is stupid I could tell them this story anywhere right you know I don't have to do that right here mm-hmm. it, you know a couple of them might be might be mildly impressed that my name is on that panel but aside from that there's no there's nothing that, that's drawing them to that mm-hmm other than me taking and directing their attention directly to it. And so since then, I've been, every time we go down there, when I take the part, I go right past my panel with my name. I say, yep, that's my work. And don't go into it at all because right behind there is the ram- and the Thicket. I mean, directly <laughs> opposite, three feet away from it. And that's a much more important thing to have the kids look right. at and discuss and analyze and,
1: you know. That <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so, that's true. You know, sometimes we try to want to... Um, I don't want to say bring too much science into it um, and, and kind of lose a little bit of the humanity behind it. Uh-huh. Um, but some some exhibits can tend to do that, I think, when they try to bring a little too much into it. Um, and, and instead of letting people just... Because I, I get what you're saying. You're, you're more of a fan of letting people just experience, you know... I think that the experience can definitely be highlighted. And, um, and it also depends on
0: the kind of museum. I mean, going to, to see a... Uh, going into... Uh, a simulator, a flight simulator at the Air and Space Museum mm-hmm. is absolutely contextually sensible, right? Yeah. You know, it, it is, yes, a little bit like going on a ride. Um, and so there are going to be people, and I know that when I was 11, that's what I wanted to do and I didn't get the chance to, but it didn't matter so much. Man. Uh, <laughs> but, which is why I kept on going back. Right, right, right. Uh, but, that, but, you know, a fully immersive thing like that that doesn't directly pertain to the objects might not be appropriate at the Met. Yeah. Right? And yeah. that's what that's what my wife's working on is trying to re envision how they foreground the art and suppress a little bit the history mm-hmm. in what they're trying to say about the objects on display. And you were talking about context, and a lot of the objects that they have there were, you know, art pieces mm-hmm. from a hundred years ago. And so there is no meaningful context. You know, there's, there's a trading history of the object and there are uh, there are guesses as to where it came from, educated mm-hmm. guesses, but not necessarily anything that you could remotely call archaeological context. Hmm. They do have other ones that do have quite good context because they came from excavations mm-hmm. and they know that and they want to put that, so they don't want to submerge that. They want to be totally right. front about what's known and what's not known and how things are known and why things aren't known. But... Uh, but again, they have to do it with sensitivity because the the focus of their exhibition really should be the art and the artistry in the objects that they wanted to display, not the uh, not necessarily the history lesson right to go along with that. If you get the history lesson from it, that's an extra bonus
1: right, and I guess that's <sighs> I guess that's where I try to uh, have trouble separating the um, the archaeologist in me from just a person appreciating things like that. Because mm-hmm. when I look at art, like I said, if if someone was playing something, you know, ha- was was displaying a piece of art from say the 1700s and they're playing like, you know, harpsichord music in the background or something, you know, that something might be where it, it might be effective. Um, but then again, somebody who's you know, really into art interpretation and this is a really important piece or something like that might be just saying, listen, this is timeless and we want you to interpret it based on now, not based on 300 years ago mm-hmm. or based on, you know, you as a person in your experiences, not on, because I'm interested more in the motivations of the artist and what was the artist experiencing at that time uh-huh. in that place to cause them to create such a thing. That's the thing that really interests me. Um, so well, to bring it back to to where we're sitting right now, uh, you know, where what are some of the things? Uh, what are some of these things you've seen in museums? We'll start with the bad, then we'll go to the good that you've seen that have just been like, man, I just really would have done this a different way. You know, like I haven't that.
0: seen anything today that that that, that was bad, mm-hmm. um, but I definitely, like I've said, you know, where you have video displays to give ancillary information, I, and you see this with kids at museums all the time. They go and they sit down at the desk there on in the corner. And they start playing it like it's a video game Mm -hmm. uh, and drilling through all the, You know, hopefully they're learning something, but more often than not (laughs) I get the feeling like they're just pushing buttons because it's a display and they're they're conditioned to do so. uh, And then ignoring everything else that's going on around them. And that's certainly a problem that we have when we take those fifth graders there. There is Mm -hmm. one display in the corner and as we get close to that, inevitably three of the 11 kids that are in my group will go
1: right to that.
0: And start pressing buttons. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's good material there, but th- that material can be deployed across the Internet. Uh, yeah. I don't... I, it, it's not a bad thing that it's there, but it's a, it can be a problematic thing that it's there. You know, if your intention right. is to show them the actual objects that they've been studying for yeah. months.
1: <laughs> well, and I don't personally know any science museum curators. I'd like to talk to one because a, a lot of the science-based museums, Um, you know, they always have, and and by science, I even mean like archaeology, history, things like that. Uh They always have some sort of interactive displays that are really geared towards children, you know, for the most part. Now, I was surprised at natural history here in the Human Origins exhibit. They do have... They're at child height, so everybody can do it. And probably so, like, they're wheelchair accessible and things like that. But they had displays that were clearly not just for children. Like, you move these things across, and they're interactive in the sense that you have to actually touch something on the display to see what's the cost and benefit of humans standing upright, for example, was right. one of them. You know, something like that. And uh, so, in that sense, I, I feel like... These curators and the people who are, and the museum display people that are setting these up um, are calling it a win if they get some sort of interaction rather than somebody just walking by and glossing and again, over that, it. That, that, that
0: comes down to the kind of museum, you know, that's definitely more applicable in a science museum Um, and it gets into bits of uh, of, uh, pedagogy Mm -hmm. where you have, for example the the, the notion that if you're manipulating something, if you're working with something at the same time you retain that knowledge more, you get it more viscerally, you understand it in a different way than you would if you're just reading about it and that works for a lot of people for a lot of different kinds of things, so if you're trying to show how something works physically, for example, at a science museum, and you can do an interactive exhibit that demonstrates that that can really help drive the point home and yeah so a certain number of kids are going to be doing and playing the whatever game as if it's a game but Mm -hmm. some aren't and some of those that do play with it as a game are still going to get the important underlying concepts right that's also because you know most science museums the object itself isn't really the focus it's the uh it's the principle behind it the Mm -hmm. object is an illustration of Um, And we're in an art museum. It's the inverse, right? Right. The object is the focus and whatever you want to tell the story is background information.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And that's a good point to note that it is the type of museum that really matters. Um, And that's it's also, I think, the location of the museum. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or Mc Sandwich. But you're the Filet-O-Fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar
0: sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the Filet-O-Fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. The National Mall, amongst all the national museums, the Smithsonian museums, I kind of would expect this to just be a repository for things that are important to the country, the history of the country. Yeah, well, that's really what. (laughs) (laughs) That's what this is. This this, this whole thing. I mean, if you look at it, I, I don't know, I look at it.
0: Not unlike you know Chaco Canyon or something where you have all <laughs> it really these is, right? <laughs> you know you spend the whole day walking from one end to the other. <laughs> it's this big canyon that cuts between, <laughs> between yeah. the, uh, the Jefferson Memorial and the, uh, and, and, the, and the Capitol and we've got uh, Man, this walls is exactly... on either side here. and these walls in our case happen to be these these museums yeah. that, uh, that are telling different parts of what people have decided are the American story.
1: This is exactly like Chaco Canyon. We did an eight-mile hike just to go see one, you know, uh, one uh, pueblo, and um, and it was. I mean, that's what you do. But that's what we do here. Yeah. We've gone from end to end to see different things, right. you know, in our monuments, in our right. American monuments. But, but yeah, that's how I see these museums here. I see them more as well, um, almost less as as teaching museums. Like I don't want to like like I appreciate it when I learn something, but uh-huh. I do see it as a, a repository for American history in one way or another um you know like that's why at the air and space museum there's there's all the airplanes hanging from the ceilings yeah, and that's all the why you've displays. you've got the right flyer there. The right flyer, yeah, the Icon Bell X1. Icon
0: American history and a major part of our, of our national mythos as inventors and yeah. as scrappy and as smart. <laughs> and as
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: originators and, and I know.
1: iconoclasts and, and all the above. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's amazing that we decide to keep stuff like that, too, and how fast technology is changing as well. Because, you know, you look at a lot of the stuff in there. I mean, I took a picture of, uh, let's say, like I said, the Bell X1, Chuck Yeager's, uh, you know, first plane he broke the sound barrier uh-huh. chuck yeager is alive and lives not far from me in northern california and uh and and we've actually there's people i know in reno that know chuck yeager that have talked about getting him over to help speak to, to speak for our uh, our civil air patrol squadron uh-huh. i mean chuck freaking yeager That's and his plane that cool. he broke the sound <laughs> barrier and it's right there in the Smithsonian, and uh and john glenn um you know his spacesuit is over there wait did he just recently die he's still alive i think oh maybe it's neil armstrong that died no, Buzz Aldrin. No, oh. he's still alive. Well, either way, <laughs> you know what? If he's not alive, it's not been very long. Maybe he's been dead. Yeah. But anyway, we decided let's, let's take it, that yeah. and put it over there. And and like that, uh, and, and also uh, an, ex- an exhibit my wife thought she would be dragging me to, um, and she kind of was a little bit, but I'm still an archaeologist and uh, a lover of history. But one of the first things we went to in the American History Museum was, um, was, uh, I keep saying that wrong, the American Museum of History? The Museum of American History? The Museum of American History? I don't know. I, know what he, I'm they're about. all a jumble right now. Yeah, the one right there. <laughs> that the that one just right there, from. yeah. But the, um, the First Lady uh, Dresses exhibit uh-huh. uh, of American First Ladies, and um, that was actually pretty interesting. I could have seen a few different ways. I would have liked to have seen that exhibit done personally, but... Um, I thought it was really interesting and it's, and it's amazing to me to look at those and say, well, at least these last like handful of women are still alive, you know, and they just donated their, I mean, Michelle Obama's inaugural ball dress is in there and Mm -hmm. that was, you know, what, 10 years ago at this point, nine years ago. So, um... And and actually uh, Melania Trump, this hasn't even been a year. Her dress is in there, right? And, and on the center, I'm guessing whoever the current first lady is is in like the, the, the center, center, center display. That yeah, I would expect. Yeah, that would that would make sense. Um, well, I was
0: just in there, and I, but it's so full of, of really interesting little bits of uh, yeah. pop cultural ephemera. I, I went in there to go look at the the, the Tucker car, yeah. And I went I there to see the uh, the the old Telecaster guitar that they had, and uh, nice and. On the I way saw the apple II. I missed that, but I saw I saw Mister Rogers' sweater. And oh I was pretty God. happy to see that. That's pretty awesome. I don't remember seeing that. Damn it! Yeah. It's right there next to Oscar, Oscar the Grouch. Uh, so. See,
1: there's so much in there. Yeah, yeah but it's all it's uh, you know yeah. there was an
0: etch a sketch on the wall.
1: I saw that one. Yeah, yeah, and that's really cool. That's what that's one thing I appreciate appreciate about the museums down here is they're cataloging they're cataloging history before some of it even becomes history. Mm -hmm. Like, they're they're really staying on top of things and and recognizing. That's what they do pretty aggressively there. And the other
0: ones range between, you know, very traditional art museums and natural history museum, which is a very good one, but it's like any other natural history museum you've been at, uh, in that you know what the layouts are going to be. The one that I've been, that I will start out today at is the, uh, the American Indian Museum. And I went there specifically to go see the Inca Road exhibition. Oh, wow. Which was really, really well done. Um, It's not especially densely crowded. They start with a little bit of the uh, antecedent cultures to the Inca, and then it's just a lot about the roads. I wish they'd gone into more tech about how the road itself is built, but mm-hmm. they do have some—they uh, do have some details about how those, you know, wacky rope bridges are built, how they're put together, both in terms of like who does it and uh, and what. The, the technology is to make those ropes and how far they can span yeah. and how much weight they can hold. Uh, and they talked about the technology of the terraced agriculture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's 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 a fairly big exhibition. Again, not very densely packed, but densely packed with information um, and accessible in a lot of different modes of can- conveying that. They do have, you know, object behind glass with a little <laughs> plant And they've got lots of text panels and they've got a few manipulables. And what they had that was... Interesting. I'm still not sure how I feel about it, but I definitely played with it for a while. They had like a, I guess it must be a Microsoft Surface, a big mm. se- seven by three table. With it, I think it's called
1: the Microsoft table actually. Uh,
0: that's yeah. what it's called now. I think
1: so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With
0: a with a map of Cusco. Oh wow! And with different highlighted areas on it. And nice. So you could press the button, and it would come up, bilingual, Spanish, and English, with other photos that you could go mm-hmm. through. Some of them had 3D reconstructions. Some of them had uh, had 3D uh, photographs that you could then scroll through to see what it would look like standing in that spot. Mm-hmm. Um, ancillary information, videos, again, both bilingual, English, and, and Spanish.
1: Uh, and that one, I think i'm okay with that <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds really cool and i like that i appreciate that these museums have the have the money actually and the the expertise i mean they're seen as like you know probably for museum curators they're seen as like the place to eventually be at some point i mean they're the pinnacle of yeah their categories right yeah yeah um well what i liked about that uh about that that table was that it contextualized it yeah
0: You know, there's a map of Cusco. Here's these pictures. Otherwise, these pictures would be, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily know where in the city they were and what they had to do. Oh, this is part of the processional way. This is the uh, this is the old temple. Here's the Spanish uh, church that was put on top of it. Here, you know, and you could see it and start to fit these these different images that you've seen, these different Mm -hmm. objects, these different ideas that you got through the whole rest of the exhibition into space relative to each other. Right, which is why i think i am okay with this uh this intrusion of yeah. high tech into uh into the, the exhibition space there it also wasn't crowded with people right you know so well, it wasn't it didn't have 12 little kids pressing every
1: button <laughs> uh, yeah
0: and ignoring everything else there people would walk through they'd get to that they'd spend a few minutes at it yeah. go hmm, and yeah. then walk
1: on nice well you know that Again, it's it. I love that because it helps put you in the space. Right, that map helps you show where things are. It, it, that archaeology museum in Naples, if they had, if they had put even a map of Pompeii or wherever these things were, and right. say this was here, yes, you know, like this was found here, but they couldn't have done that because they grouped things in ways that were that made that impossible. Like I would see a display of, you know, a hundred different um, little those little like. Um, uh, cameos you know or uh-huh. something like that or beads or little pieces of glass or, they were all in a case together uh-huh. so you couldn't say these were all found here because they were they were categorized by by object not yeah, by yeah, location but, uh, or yeah. use or anything like that so This leads to, let's wrap up this conversation with what we'd like to see in the future, because I've had a lot of conversations with people about museums of the future. And 99% of the time, it ends up being some sort of, like if we talk way in the future, it ends up seeing some sort of immersive, holographic 3D reconstruction that you can do from your house. Now, I, I think we know that things will eventually go there. So my question to you is, more... Is it important, because you talk to people that are real purists or that don't understand technology or don't like technology, and they say, no, I think you should go to the museum. Is it more important to physically see the object or to understand the history and context of the object? Oh, I think that, <laughs> I, I think that it's more important to understand the history and the context,
0: but I think that we, the way our, our wiring is biologically, it's more important to see it, to make it real. And the, years ago, I was listening to NPR, and I heard what at the time I thought was the stupidest thing ever. Uh, and I really wish I could remember who said this. They said, "You know, people go to the Grand Canyon and they take a, you know, the family picture of them standing in the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Why do they do that? To prove that they were there? It's like, no, that's not why. They prove it's to prove that the Grand Canyon exists. <laughs> they know that they're real, but now they have proof that the Grand Canyon is really as big and spectacular as it is. Yeah, um, and." I've come around to thinking that this is actually a really brilliant idea. That people do want to see originals of things because then it exists in a way that they can comprehend and then turn around and learn more about. So, you know, I think that it's tough. The important thing is is the knowledge and the information, Mm -hmm. but. seeing something really drives it home in a good way and i'm going to give you another example of a museum that we were at not here this is in Bolzano, italy it's the Uzi, the iceman museum oh yeah if you ever get the chance to go to that museum brilliant archaeological museum small wonderfully laid out draws you right through with various examples and such uh you know you get to see utzi himself mm-hmm. through glass um Descriptions about the objects that were on him, how they were made, how they were used. There might be some other examples. Uh, and then it ends up with things, stories of and things from other people who are in more recent times who've gone missing in the Alps. Right. Uh, and so you come out of that understanding a lot about Bronze Age Alpine Europe, understanding a hell of a lot about ITZY and mm-hmm. this, the the what's... The current thought about his life his death and what's understood about his discovery um, and contextualize you know about the dangers of the mm-hmm. alps because you know that part of the alps is really really snowy icy and people do get lost there and people do die there right uh you know even if they are
1: not Chase through the Alps
0: and with Arrows.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Side note, uh, go to arcpodnet.com and type in Iceman in the search bar and you'll find the Arc365 episode that we did about Butsu the Iceman. Oh, good. It's a very short one, but it was very cool. Yeah. Um, It's nice doing a little bit of research on that. Because I'd heard of him obviously, but hadn't really delved into it a little bit. Um, You know, that's I guess the I guess the way I see it um, is I agree with you uh, and I and I agree with I agree with people that That think that, you know, it it is important to to make the objects real. I mean, it was... But then again, we're so... Maybe it's just me. I'm so jaded sometimes. Like, I'm looking at everything in the Air and Space Museum going, Ah, is that real? Is that actually it? Like, I was actually Mm. surprised at, like, the American Museum. We'll just call it that. um, (laughs) The American Museum of History and other things. That uh, when when we saw the Star Spangled... Like, they weren't even... um, They weren't even really highlighting it that much, I don't feel. But when you walk into the place, if you walk in from the right entrance you see the big metal conceptual um, American flag sitting right there on the wall, right? And then you go behind it. We almost didn't even go through that little exhibit. I was like, oh, it's just an exhibit on the flag. And I was like, okay, you know, I, I was in the military, I'm in the Civil Air Patrol now, I know all about the flag and the history and things like that. But we're like, no, let's go through it. And you go through there and you come around the backside and it's the goddamn original flag that hung over Baltimore. right? And I had no idea that was back there. Yeah. And that to me is, pr- that to me, somebody here is telling you about context. It was so amazing just being near that flag and seeing it and knowing that that was the original flag that hung over there that inspired the song and all that stuff that was kind of cool on the other hand there's so much stuff in the museums that are reproductions that are, like in this Human Origins Museum, mm-hmm. nothing in there was real. Right. They're all casts. Right. Right? Because the original fossils, the Africans are smart enough, whether they're Kenyan, Ethiopian, Tanzanian, they're keeping that shit now. <laughs> like It's not leaving. Like, we saw Lucy when it was on tour in the United States. We saw her when we were happening driving through Houston mm-hmm. and we saw the Lucy exhibit. We got to see the real Australopithecus afarensis, you know, skeleton laying out there and it was, I mean, there's this whole thing leading up to... It and then it was this darkened room and she's laid out right there and it was pretty it was pretty cool seeing the actual fossils, but I guess my point is in a lot of museums how much stuff are you looking at the really important things uh, in a lot now in the Air and Space Museum those are real like those are the actual aircraft you right. know that are hanging from the ceiling which I think is still kind of amazing in some cases heavily reconstructed heavily even the Wright flyer had been refabriced just right. not too
0: long ago and in some cases. Cut up so that they can fit, you know, the the, the nose cone in. Yeah, and yeah. The rest of it is who knows where.
1: I know exactly, exactly. So, so in that in that sense, it's neat. It's neat being there and seeing the actual things. But how much of that stuff is? Is real, And why do we place so much importance on that? I feel like that's why we own storage units. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, we we, we put such a heavy emphasis on things and owning and visual. But I understand having to have the reality of knowing that it actually exists, too. You know, it's like that guy, that flat earth guy, uh, whose mission in the rocket that he built in his backyard to fly up above. Yeah, to to go all 1,800 feet in the air. (laughs) To somehow prove that by... He could have just climbed a mountain. He's in the desert, right? Just climb a mountain and you're done, buddy. (laughs) But the government shut him down because he was going to kill himself or someone else doing it. Yeah. But he needed visual proof to see that the earth was flat. And it's we're such a visual species, you know. Yeah. And this is why museums continue to exist and thrive, I think. No, I, I agree with that.
0: I mean, it's... Uh yeah, and there are a lot of interesting questions, and I'm not a museologist, so, you know.
1: <laughs> you might be partially getting to talk to your wife about it all yeah, the time. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 a little bit by osmosis, and I'm not yeah. a fraction of, of what she is. Uh, I'm not a knitter, but I know shockingly large amounts of information about it because of my you wife. You seem to be carrying around some knitting nuts <laughs> <laughs> It was nar- in my bag. <laughs> uh, As our segue, posse goes uh, yeah. by. Yeah, yeah those... <laughs> you just can't look cool riding one. I like I like seeing the people on the Segway with like dirt all over the front of their pants. You know they didn't do well in the training. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, what would you what would you like to see in a museum in twenty years, but as a display or or your experience with the objects, whether it's in the museum or not?
0: Well, I think that. So- smart and this is just this is path but i think being really smart about the ancillary materials about whether they be static text panels whether they be different kind of interactive or experiential sorts of uh enhancements i think are all good and Mm -hmm. are all necessary but they have to be but the balance uh has to be there in any given exhibition it's going to be entirely dependent on what kind of museum it is, what the stories that they're trying to tell, what the objects are that they have on hand. Uh, but I think that you have to be really sensitive, and you know, and good curators are mm-hmm. uh, really sensitive about striking the right balance between all that ancillary stuff, so that you have the background knowledge to appreciate what you're seeing, without crowding out what you're supposed to be appreciating.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, that's, um, I don't know, I, I like the thought of, uh, me personally, I like the thought of something like this existing in Washington, D.C. Where, where we can take this history and these objects and we can curate them here, the actual real thing. So they can be here, they can be on display for people that want to make it here. But I'm 42 years old and this is the first time I've been in the nation's capital. First time I've been in any of these museums. Um, I was just about to say I don't know when I'll be here next, but I'll be here in April for the Society for American Archaeology <laughs> conference because it's in the same damn hotel. I'm going to try to get the same Airbnb. It was only eleven dollars oh, Uber April, ride. April, um, swing
0: back down, and hey, uh, we can record another
1: session. There you go. There Maybe you go. Maybe there's some good new exhibition I should hey, see. I'm going to have a booth. Come to the conference, and we can we can record in the booth. Um, anyway, um, so I mean, I. I, I love that there's a, a physical repository for all these things. As far as regional local museums go, I think they'd be better off, um, you know, maybe having a, a housing place for some of these samples of their regional things so you know, you know, where the things came from and, and things like that. But I think they'd be better off putting up a, a, a more, as technology increases anyway, we can make this actually a good experience making a more virtual experience and a virtual walkthrough and a virtual environment, you know, where you can experience that. But of course the technology has to catch up with that until, until everyone, until you open your junk drawer in your kitchen and it's full of 3d glasses and goggles, you know, like that you just hook to your TV, like they're just a dime a dozen. You go down and get one out of the, out of the, uh, um, you know, vending machine until that happens. We're not going to have something like that. And so we're talking way in the future, but I don't know, that's, that's where I'd like to see things go because I think people would experience them a lot more. So, but without the real stuff behind it, you're gonna have generations of people born going, ah, did that stuff really happen? Because I just saw it in a video game. And then people are gonna mess with it visually. Yeah, and well, especially as the graphics get better and more realistic. Yeah. I know, I know. Where will the lines be between reality and the It'll be like when you go to an
0: archaeological site that's had a lot of reconstruction, but the reconstruction hasn't been indicated. Right, right. You know, It'll be like generations of Europeans thinking that all the Greek and Roman statues were intended to be marble white (laughs) as opposed to painted garish colors. Yes. Uh, Yes. You'll have a, a kind of skewed perspective on reality and where things are. So I think for that aspect, having real objects and real things to look at, to discuss, is still going to always be there. Um, you know, having being able to go and look at what I'm assuming is Mr. Rogers' real
1: sweater. Right. <laughs> Right.
0: As opposed to a reproduction. Probably wouldn't be that hard to reproduce.
1: Probably not. Probably not. Um, I mean, he probably bought his sweater at, like, you know, J C JCPenney or something. <laughs> I mean, let's be <laughs> honest. Sears, probably. <laughs> um, you know, and that's a good point to end on, too, because it's something I hadn't really thought about, but you just kind of alluded to it. You know, museums do their own... They do, in their own way, show us a version of history that they want us to see.
0: Yeah, they become authorities know? for things. They're, they're, right. they're giving you a, an authoritative statement that this is real this is what the experts believe you should understand this as
1: right right you know it it brings up like why is there a native american history museum here why is there an african society and culture i think it's called museum uh uh, african-american you know culture museum why do those things exist because more than likely people weren't Incredibly, I wouldn't say they're unhappy, but they weren't probably overly happy with how those cultures are displayed in the Museum of Natural History or in the American History Museum. That's always been a real problematic (laughs) thing of
0: having Native American artifacts, in particular, in natural history museums, as if they
1: are animals. animals. Right. Totally. Yeah. I I mean, I completely agree with that. And um, so it makes sense that they have their own museum. But again, they're showing... The version of history that they want you to see, you know, those museums are every museum does that and they try to probably I'd like to think that they try to, they try to give the majority viewpoint you know, but do they do that and do they cover all the bases, I don't know I don't know if they do or not, but um, I don't know, any final thoughts on museums? I like them, (laughs) I'm glad I came down today, I like them too and I'm I'm so happy we went here and we saw all these things and uh, we saw these uh, monuments and all the things that we're surrounded by, the sheer amount of history. I, I've been to, we were talking about earlier, Rachel and I, you know, how many, um, we, we've been to different cities around the world, and, you know, we've been to places fairly recently, too. We were in Italy last year and Scotland the year before that, and when I was in the Navy, I went to most of the countries in the Mediterranean, and mm-hmm. uh, it was, um, I've been to a, a handful of, like, world capitals that are, um, uh, you know, like country capitals that are, uh that are pretty well known and, and nine times out of ten that capital is the place where people want to go anyway like Rome you know what I mean right. um, people want to go there like London uh, people are going to these Edinburgh and Scotland and people go to these places but the Washington DC to me is always seen as even for me growing up on the west coast is always just like a center of politics not a center of you know all these monuments and history and museums I knew all this stuff was here I've always known all this stuff was here but but really being able to see this on our soil, on American soil, is something I think everybody should do. I mean just looking at the Capitol down the way there and some of these buildings here, I mean you could lift right out here and drop down into, you know, downtown Naples or anywhere else with big monumental architecture and think, yeah, we got that too. You <laughs> know? I mean it's not quite the same. No. It's in different styles, no, I mean, but it's in our own style. Right. You know? And it's just it's something that I don't know really impresses me about what we have here. And uh, and I'm glad I came to. So Good. Yeah. Well, I think we'll call that good. And uh, if you've got your own thoughts on museums, uh, which I'm sure that you do. Please chime in. I'm sure we've got (laughs) great ideas out there. Yeah. Yeah, corrections
0: to things we've said, (laughs) different takes on things.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, if you're hearing this on uh, in your own Facebook or something like that, um, share this out too, so other people can. uh, I want to hear other people's takes on it, especially people, you know, whoever's listening to this podcast. Chances are you're a fan of archaeology or you are an archaeologist or something like that. I want to hear opinions from people who aren't into this at all, who aren't archaeologists. You know, share this with your family members so. You know, Grandma Joan can be like, I love museums because they remind me of when I was a kid. You know, I don't know what she's going to say, but, you know, what do they think? So let us know and uh, contact us in the show notes. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArchPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day.